I trekked in. I was hiking through knee-deep snow, oh. got over the pass, and dropped into a place called Clear Creek in the Siskiyous, and was humbled because I thought I knew trees, I thought mm. I knew plants, and I realized I didn't know anything in the Klamath Mountains. It was all new to me. Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever looked around and realized just how much there is left to learn. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking about a Northern California hotspot for biodiversity, the Klamath Mountains, with Michael Kaufman, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, we discuss ancient rocks, carnivorous plants, temperate rainforests, why people are a vital part of the story of place, and why the Klamath Mountains are bursting with a truly stunning array of beings and relationships. Two quick things before we get into the episode. One is that the next episode is going to be all about what it means to be a naturalist with Justin Garwood, who actually co-edited A Natural History of the Klamath Mountains with Michael Kaufman. So we all went out to the Klamath Mountains together, and I interviewed them separately on different topics. So if you've ever wondered what exactly a naturalist is or how to develop your naturalist skills, stay tuned for that conversation and make sure you're following the podcast so you don't miss it. And two, if you believe in what Golden State Naturalist is doing and want to help more people connect with the natural world all around them, it would be so appreciated if you would consider supporting the show for as little as $4 a month on Patreon. The wonderful people supporting the show on Patreon allow me to plan for the future and keep bringing you great guests on fascinating topics from all across the state. And as a thank you, patrons get access to bonus audio from interviews, the ability to submit questions for guests, and a patrons-only book club. If you want to help me keep making the show and reaching more people, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. I'll also put a link in the show notes so you can pop down there real quick and you can even start with a free trial. But now let's get to the episode. Michael Kaufman is an ecologist, author, editor, speaker, and educator. He earned his BA in biology with a chemistry minor from Virginia Tech, multiple and single-subject teaching credentials from Humboldt State University, and an MA in biology from Humboldt State in 2012. Also in 2012, Michael co-founded Backcountry Press, where he and his wife, Allison Poklemba, who you might remember from the seaweed episode, are on a mission to enhance the human connection with the natural world through easy-to-understand science and direct experience in nature. Together, they publish a beautiful collection of books and craft both online and in-person experiences in service of this mission. As an author, Michael's books include Conifer Country, Conifers of the Pacific Slope, A Field Guide to Manzanitas, and California Desert Plants. And in 2022, Backcountry Press published the beautiful and comprehensive Klamath Mountains A Natural History, edited by Michael Kaufman and Justin Garwood. This book has since won the 92nd Annual California Book Awards Gold Medal for Contribution to Publishing. So without further ado, let's hear from Michael Kaufman on Golden State Naturalist. It was a drizzly morning back in April when I met Michael Kaufman and Justin Garwood in a Safeway parking lot in Arcata, California. We piled into Justin's car and headed east on a windy Highway 299 for about 40 minutes until we reached East Fork Campground. The area was still closed to campers for the season, so we pulled over out of the way of the locked gate, opened our doors, and stepped out into a world covered in moss. A trickle of water ran down a nearby rock face, little ferns popping up here and there out of the mosses, trees wore luxurious green turtlenecks, and the sound of water was everywhere, from raindrops hitting the hood of my jacket, to the little impromptu stream coming down from the rocks, to the sound of a rushing creek in the distance. We explored the area for a bit, peering into the creek and peeking under a few logs, and soon Michael and I sat down at a picnic table to discuss this beautiful place we were in. We're just on the western edge of the Klamath Mountains and because of that we have the influence from the coastal environments, the wet coastal environments. So we're in what I like to call the coastal 
temperate forests of the Klamath Mountains. And basically, it's almost like a redwood forest without mm. the redwoods. Mm. So the understory is an influence of sword ferns and trillium and redwood sorrel, colt's foot. But the overstory is a mix of coastal species like big Douglas firs, tan oaks, big leaf maples, and we even have an endemic conifer here, the uh, Port Orford cedar, Camisiparis lawsoniana. That's this one right here? This is, yeah, it's right next to us. And this this is basically its southern range extension right here on wow. in this canyon. How far north does it go? They go up to around Port Orford, Oregon. Okay. On the coast. Coquille River, they get inland on the Coquille River. That's where the real big ones are left. Nice. Standing. And then they're scattered throughout the Siskiyou Mountains in... The Klamath Mountains, Siskiyous are a sub-range of the Klamath. But there's a really interesting population, relic population, in the headwaters of the Sacramento River. So way over by Mount Shasta, uh-huh. there's a pocket of these trees that still exists. And that there's some debate about why they're still there. But the idea wow. is it's a kind of this real wet spot uh-huh. near Mount Shasta, kind of traps the rain. And that the wetness is has persisted in that eastern Klamath Mountain population in the Sacramento River headwaters. It, c- it kind of mimics where we are now. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, but it's yet it's about 100 miles away as wow. the crow flies inland. Okay, I just want to pop in here and tell you to remember Port Orford cedars and this funny relic population in Shasta, because they're going to be a great example of something Michael says later in the interview. And here in the Klamath, you have so many little microclimates that you might have something that's reflected really far away, all smushed in together Yep. in this one spot. That's right. That's so cool. Yeah, every little spot's unique in the Klamath. More about what makes the Klamath so unique in just a moment. If you're a fan of this podcast, there's a good chance you've experienced the joy of planting a teeny tiny little seed and helping it grow into something beautiful. Last year, I started a native plant garden from seed with my family and got to see California poppies, yarrow, lupins, and more native wildflowers grow and bloom right in my front yard. But finding the right native plant seeds for your project can be tricky in our state with its super diverse set of soil types and microclimates, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the new California Collection, a project of Nature's Seed. The California Collection is an online store that carries over 140 different plant species originally collected from the wild and produced by local California growers like Hedgerow Farms, which you might remember from the Golden State Naturalist episode on growing native plants from seed. You can purchase anything from a packet to several pounds and have it shipped right to you. I'm really excited about adding some native milkweed from monarch butterflies and California buckwheat to feed a ton of different pollinators in my yard. Listeners of this podcast can use the code GSN10 to take $10 off your order. Visit natureseed.com backslash California seeds to check it out today. That's natureseed.com backslash California seeds or check the link in the show notes. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Today on Golden State Naturalist, we're talking about a biodiverse Northern California mountain range, the Klamath Mountains, with Michael Kaufman. Let's start with Michael's story. How did you initially become interested in the natural world? And then how did that end up as this deep dive with the Klamath Mountains natural history in this region? Sure. Well, it's a long story, but I can consolidate it. I grew up in the eastern deciduous forests and the tidal swamps of Virginia near Jamestown and Williamsburg. And I was lucky because we had this natural setting that was a, the national park of the Colonial Parkway to escape to and canoe through and stomp through the mud. And there were these secret spots that nobody knew about that we found as kids that we could go and have campfires in the afternoon or camp out as we got older. 
And that was my gateway to nature, that and the Boy Scouts. But I think nature close by and being lucky enough to be able to access it was important. Then I went to college and I knew that I wanted to study the natural world because I had a high school biology teacher who created a field course. They called it wet and dry biology. And it was two periods. So he would load us on a bus and we would go places. We had hip waders. We'd go through the swamps. We'd look at beaver dams. We'd identify trees in the winter without, you know, by bark without leaves. So little things like that really piqued my interest. I, so huge. I went right to college and, and got my biology degree in four years. I can't say I excelled in those four <laughs> years, but I learned, I learned the stuff I wanted to learn. And then I found my way west to teach environmental education. I, I had done some teaching in summer in the summers between you know my university time and realized that it was a great way to A, be able to live wherever you wanted because teachers are needed everywhere, but also mm-hmm. B, to inspire both myself and the students. So I ended up in Tulare County teaching at SICON, which is an environmental education school that sees all the kids from Tulare County, all the sixth graders, which is pretty amazing that every kid in the county gets to go mm. to an environmental education center. And that was a one-year internship. I parlayed that into a full-time job with Los Angeles County teaching in the San Gabriel Mountains. And when I was in the San Gabriels, it was great because, A, it's a this kind of this wilderness oasis in the middle of the urban sprawl. You know, mm-hmm. any, everywhere around the San Gabriels that's flat has people. You know, the high <laughs> right. desert, the L.A. Basin, San Bernardino, the Inland Empire. But, yeah, the San Bernardinos and the San Gabriels where I lived were these epic adventurous places right oh, yeah so i'd escape i'd see bighorn sheep i'd wow. you know climb the mountains and i'd start to see these unusual trees at the tops of the mountains and that also continued when i went to the desert the mojave desert you climb a, a high peak a six or seven or eight thousand foot peak in the mojave and there might be white fur at the top so i started mm. to develop this connection with conifers mm-hmm. the word conifer comes from latin and literally means cone bearing So all your pines, redwoods, firs, cedars, cypresses, all conifers. I find this word to be a wonderfully welcoming word for learners like me, because using more specific terms like cedar or fir requires a bit more botanical knowledge, whereas conifer allows new people into the conversation to talk about these species more generally. And I love a word that does that. And conifers were really my, you know, my first love of the natural world as a young adult. And... uh... Anyway, the other part of the story is everybody I worked with went to Humboldt State, Cal Poly Humboldt. Oh, yeah. So I knew I needed a teaching credential. And after about, I was five years with Los Angeles County. I took half a year off. I hiked the Continental Divide Trail and I Mm. moved straight to Arcata. Nice. And jumped into the school thing again, you know, after about an eight-year lull and lucked into a job teaching middle school science. And I got to stay in Humboldt and, and that allowed me summers off which I started to spend in the Klamath. Uh, and the Klamath Mountains, you know, is it, I'll tell you the, the first story, and I wrote about this in my first book, Conifer Country, but the first story of me in the Klamath Mountains was a weekend in February. Up here in Humboldt County, we get President's Week, and I, you get a whole we week off in, in Sacramento, February. Yeah, it, okay. or at least in some school districts in Sacramento yeah. get it, yeah. And I, I think it evolved because it's typically the darkest, rainiest times of the year and people just needed a break from no recess with kids or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, I had that week off and I decided I looked, was pouring over maps and I found this 4,000 foot pass in the Siskiyous. And I had just come from Southern California, 4,000 feet in Southern California. That's no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could get there any time of year. Well, I learned pretty quickly that 4,000 feet in the Siskiyous is a different story. And I trekked in, I you know, was hiking through knee-deep snow, oh. got over the pass and dropped into a place called Clear Creek in the Siskiyous and was humbled because I thought I knew trees, I thought mm. I knew plants, and I realized I didn't know anything in the Klamath Mountains. It was all new to me. I was seeing, I knew, I knew to look for the brewer spruce, which is our endemic okay. spruce. And I found the brewer spruce mm-hmm. and I was pretty jazzed. I'm like, yeah. But then I'm seeing firs, hemlocks, and mm-hmm. I didn't know what they were. How did you feel at that moment? Was it like a, was it a moment of awe or was it like crap? Like what was, what was it? Was a little, it was a little of both, I think. I think the awe was there because I, you know, again, I said I was humbled and I was because, you know, I kind of came in thinking, oh, I know I'm pretty good naturalist. I know, right. I know my trees, <laughs> but it was also became a challenge. And yeah. 
And so I, I finished that trip and I, you know, got back to civilization and I went to the, I remember going specifically to the Cal Poly library and trying to dig into any sort of literature about the plants up here and specifically conifer distributions. And there wasn't a lot. Mm. There was, you know, obviously Ron Lanner's Conifers of California, sort of a Bible for conifer lovers, but Northwest California was a gap in that book. Mm. He didn't, he didn't have the information I was looking for. There's some literature from the 60s and 70s from Griffin and Critchfield. They had some nice maps. Mm-hmm. And I dug through that and, I, and, and fell in love with their biogeography and distributions. And then that led me to meet one of the professors at Cal Poly, John Sawyer. And he really set me on the course as a Klamath Mountain naturalist. Mm. And that progressed from there. It progressed from there. I, you know, he took me under his wing. I, by, what was it, 2008? 12, I finished my first book with him as my mentor. He convinced me to turn it into a master's degree at Cal Poly. And that was my book, Conifer Country. And what's exciting about that book is it was the first natural history that was allowed to be a master's thesis at Cal Poly in 25 years. So that I I had no data analysis. It was all mapping, interpreting Hmm. relationships of of these conifers. And the reason that I pursued that is because the Klamath Mountains are one of the most diverse temperate coniferous forests on the planet. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I want to dive into that more deeply, but first I kind of want to frame the conversation. And I think that I've heard you speak elsewhere really in a compelling way about what a natural history actually is. And I, and I want to get that definition to sort of set the scene for what we're about to talk about. So how do you define a natural history? Well, if I take it back to my arrival in California real quick, I lived in Tulare County, like I said, but we took the first week I lived in this internship in this at this uh, school, we took a trip to Sequoia National Park and we stopped mm. at the visitor center on the way in at Three Rivers and I bought the Sierra Club guide to the Sierra Nevada and Joseph Whitney or Whitney's that was the author is the author's name. But that was my first real exposure to a natural history. Mm. And a natural history to me is is a story defined by some sort of boundary, whether mm. it's climate or geology or both. And obviously the Sierra Nevada is easily defined by geology with the granitics. And it was a great introduction, you know, because it discusses the birds and the mammals and the plants and the geology and the climate. So natural history is really a story about a specific place. And growing up on the East Coast, it's a little harder to define a natural history because Mm. the natural histories of the East Coast are so much older you know, f- the Appalachians are 400 million years old. They've had a lot of time to yeah. <laughs> to sort of meld and different places within the Appalachians sort of come together over that long periods of time. The geology maybe melts together a little bit. You it's know? not as cleanly delineated. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's older. The West Coast is newer, and right. I think that allows it to be a natural history to be told. So to me, that's what a natural history is. It's a story of a place uh, and it, it, as comprehensive as you can make it. It's almost like the way that you organically experience a place. Because when you go somewhere, you're not just only seeing birds, right? It's not like, which, you know, field guides for birds, great, awesome, right? But there's so many layers when you go to a place and you start to know it and you start to experience it. And putting all of those layers together, would you say, is that kind of what makes a natural history? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, how those birds relate to everything else around it. The ecology. The ecology, exactly relationships. I love that. That's beautiful. Okay, so a natural history is the story of a place, interweaving as many beings and other factors like geology and climate as possible. But how should we come to a natural history? What kinds of assumptions should we bring? The assumptions around natural history, I think what's important to understand is that you're never going to know it all, first of all. So it's, again, a humbling thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Justin and I put this natural history of the Klamath Mountains together, Justin Garwood, we drew on a lot of local experts because mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that it was comprehensive. But I think the other important part about a natural history is, at least from my perspective, is that it's it's a love story. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's something that you really have to immerse yourself in. And the story part is also important. And you're a storyteller, you know this, but you have to be able to weave the, maybe it's just the lichens and the bryophytes, right? Mm -hmm. That pique somebody's interest. But if you can weave that in to their relationship to invertebrates, maybe that person is going to flip to that chapter. And then they, they find a new love, right? And I think by telling a story in this way, we're leading to more, I would hope, leading to more understanding and that understanding deepens all of our relationship to the natural world and and then ultimately our stewardship and caring for these places. If you haven't listened to the episode on nature journaling with John Muir Laws, 
cue that one up next, because what Michael says here reminds me so much of what John Muir Laws, also known as Jack, says about love. Jack defines love as sustained, compassionate attention. And bringing together a comprehensive natural history of a place is going to require a lot of sustained, compassionate attention to be done well. And that really radiates off of Michael in this conversation and off the page in the Klamath Natural History. So let's dive into the Klamath Mountains and where we are right now. So I'm wondering if you can just give a physical overview. Where are the boundaries? Sure. So the Klamath Mountains are defined by rock. And I talked about how do you define a natural history. So Justin and I use the Klamath Mountain Geomorphic Province. And what's interesting about the Klamath Mountains are they're, they're literally an island geological island so Mm. these these rocks on which we sit today Mm -hmm. are old like upwards of 60 70 80 million years Mm. old the rocks get older as you move further to the east up to 300 million years old but the rocks were formed under the ocean floor in many instances there's there's some exceptions and that's the other part about the klamath is the geology is nutty complex (laughs) but basically these rocks were igneous formed at the base of the ocean and through tectonic movement have been what's called accreted or just dumped onto the North American plate. Mm. So they're, they might have been put here at about the same time as some of the uh, coast range, but they were formed much earlier. Oh, right? interesting. So because of that, it creates a complexity, and often that complexity comes from heavy metals, nickel, magnesium, things that a lot of plants don't deal with well or mm-hmm. you know anything really, but plants are sort of the, the easiest way to see that. And so this, this ancient rock is here. It's surrounded by this younger rock of the coast range to the west and the Cascades to the east. And it's really created this abiotic and biotic wonderland because of the interactions of the soils, the climate, and obviously other abiotic factors like fire have sculpted the Klamath Mountains for a long time. I found a webpage from Michigan State University that explains this really well. It says, biotic and abiotic factors are what make up ecosystems. Biotic factors are living things within an ecosystem, such as plants, animals, and bacteria, while abiotic are non-living components, such as water, soil, and atmosphere. The way these components interact is critical in an ecosystem. So abiotic and biotic factors are important in every ecosystem. But in the Klamath Mountains, the abiotic factors, including fire, as Michael just mentioned, drive an incredible amount of diversity. I'll let Michael explain more about how exactly that works. And because of that dichotomy from, and it's tons of mountain ranges too, Mm. right? So we have all these sub ranges from the Siskiyou Mountains to the Trinity Alps, to the Scott Mountains, to the Trinity Mountains, you know, so all these different mountains, these different Appalachians have different characters. Some might Mm. be taller, some might be granite, some might be serpentine, but they all have this common origin story of ancient rock. So you've got this setting where the rock really drives diversity and biodiversity and then again, you've got this complex climate where where we're in here now. We're in basically a rainforest. This this area gets about sixty it's, inches. National Geographic tells me that a temperate rainforest gets between sixty and two hundred inches of rain per year. So this western part of the Klamath Mountains is just squeaking into that definition with sixty inches of rain per year. Still, we have a temperate rainforest in California. How cool is that? And I was so excited that I interrupted Michael to point out the mosses and epiphytes, which are non-parasitic plants that grow on other plants. Very mossy. There's moss everywhere you look. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Epiphytes. Yeah, epiphytes hanging everywhere. We've got ferns growing up the side of this big leaf maple in front of us. If we were to get up into these Douglas firs around us, they'd probably have some interesting uh, epiphytes up there, whether Mm. it's, you know, an animal or a plant living off of these things. So you've got... Again, in the western part of the Klamath, you've got this wet situation. And as you move further to the east, things dry out. So that also creates this dichotomy in in life Mm. where wet pockets become less common and drier pockets become more common. Serpentine also becomes more common. That's that heavy metal Mm -hmm. rock that I was talking about. I have so much serpentine drama to report. But first, did you know that serpentine is California state rock and that it can be apple green to black and is often mottled with light and dark colored areas, it's really pretty. Or that it occurs in Central and Northern California, in the Coast Ranges, the Klamath Mountains, and in the Sierra Nevada foothills, according to the California Department of Conservation. 
I also found a whole page from the U.S. Forest Service titled Serpentine Soils and Plant Adaptations, which explains that plant growth on serpentines is typically stunted. Woody plants that grow to tree height on non-serpentine soils grow in a dwarfed or shrub-like form on serpentine soils. And it also discusses a bunch of other interesting plant adaptations to serpentine. So I'll link that page in the show notes in case you want to learn more. But I also found the most amazing SF Gate article from 2010, when apparently there was a movement to remove serpentine as California's state rock and remove the category of state rock altogether, all because serpentine contains asbestos. This SF Gate article reads like something out of E! Entertainment News in the best possible way. I have to read you an excerpt because it's just so good. The stone in question, serpentine, has been the state rock since 1965, but a group led by Senator Gloria Romero, Democrat, East Los Angeles, wants it removed from the symbols list because it often contains the carcinogen linked to 2,500 deaths a year in the United States. Romero has introduced SB 624, which would strip the olive green stone of its title, but she is now running up against a gaggle of geologists and natural history buffs who have removed their spectacles, thrown down their lab coats, and are rallying to the rock's defense. Serpentine, they say, is intricately linked to California's tumultuous geologic history, was closely associated with gold deposits during the gold rush, provides habitat for rare plants and insects, and last but not least, is beautiful. The article also mentions that serpentine is sometimes associated with magic and the occult. And perhaps most importantly, geologists claim Romero's bill wrongly states that all serpentine contains cancer-causing chrysotile asbestos. In fact, naturally occurring asbestos that remains undisturbed in the ground presents no risk, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. I was digging the drama of all this, but in all seriousness, while I appreciate Senator Romero's sensitivity to the very real deaths caused by asbestos, it doesn't sound like serpentine left undisturbed in the ground has anything to do with those deaths. So I have to say I'm with the geologists on this one, and I'm glad serpentine is still the state rock, because I think that will inspire a lot more people to learn about it and all the interesting ways that it impacts ecosystems. Okay, back to the abiotic factors like serpentine driving Klamath biodiversity. So you've got climate, you've got geology, you've got every, you've got slope and aspect and all of these different factors. And just looking at the map in the book, trying to understand <laughs> what was going on. I mean, I can't even give an overview of it because there are so many tiny pockets mm -hmm. all over the place that are informed by those different abiotic factors that then create these different little sub habitats, right? Like these little mini ecosystems. Exactly. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit then how that leads to the biodiversity found in the Klamath Mountains. Sure. Yeah. So one of my other first introductions to the Klamath Mountains was a book by David Raines Wallace called The Klamath Knot. And I think that really typifies what you're trying to say here, where you look at a map and it just looks twisted and contorted and is that where the title comes from? Yeah. That's yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. So so why... Okay, so first off, obviously, you've got these different rocks, and as they get eroded by the, the systems of water, the watersheds, water moves in different ways because of the hardness of the rock. So that creates this knot, so to speak. But you also have the dichotomy of low elevation to high elevation. Mm. So we've got, in California in particular, in California's Klamath Mountains, the Klamath Mountains extend into Oregon. But in California's Klamath Mountains, we've got several ranges that reach 9,000 feet, mm. which isn't high by Sierra Nevada standards or Mount Shasta standards. For reference, the highest peak in the Sierra Nevada mountains is Mount Whitney at 14,495 feet, which is also the highest peak in the contiguous United States. And I didn't realize this, but Mount Shasta is actually not that far behind Mount Whitney at 14,180 feet. But when you have this proximity to the Pacific Ocean and the moisture through the orographic effect, Really quick, the orographic effect is what causes rain shadows. Here's a quick explanation from Nat Geo. When an air mass moves from a low elevation to a high elevation, it expands and cools. This cool air cannot hold moisture as well as warm air. Cool air forms clouds, which drop rain and snow as it rises up a mountain. After the air mass crosses over the peak of the mountain and starts down the other side, the air warms up and the clouds dissipate. This means there's less rainfall. Those high elevations create snow forests, right? Mm -hmm. They trap snow in the winter. There has been glaciation in both large and small scale. So we have several valleys similar to Yosemite in that they're big glaciers. Canyon Creek in the Trinity Alps is one. 
So a big glacier is sculpting that canyon, but in a maybe a smaller canyon in the Siskiyous that the mountains only get up to 6,500 feet, we had historically smaller glaciers on mm. the north-facing slopes, and those create these little microsites today that are mm. meadows or lakes or some form of a wetland. And then again, you've got the soil that, that can drive biodiversity. One of my favorite places on Earth is a mountaintop in the Siskiyou Wilderness. It's almost all serpentine, but it has these little pockets, these finny pockets, Mm. where the water flows out of the serpentine and Darlingtonia californica grows, the, the pitcher plant or mm-hmm. the cobra lily. It's a carnivorous plant. Those photos in the book of just the, the whole place carpeted with oh, yeah. the pitcher plants, incredible. Yeah. And why are the pitcher plants there? Well, they're there because other plants can't deal with these heavy metals. Mm. And how do they survive? Well, they supplement the nutrients through carnivory, right? They're trapping insects wow. in their pitcher. Darlingtonia is hard to cultivate, but some eastern pitcher plants are more easily cultivated. So you may have seen them in garden shops or whatever, right. but it's the same mechanism where they have a light or scent that draws insects in. Insects get trapped and they slowly digest them. So anyway, again, we're talking about dichotomy. So a high elevation versus low elevation, western forests versus eastern forests. And then there's also a dichotomy from the south in the Klamath Mountains to the north, because Mm. we are at the southern tip of the Pacific Northwest rainforest. And you mentioned as we walked in today, this is the first time it really feels like I've been in a rainforest on this trip. But then as you move into Oregon, the rainforest, uh, the Pacific Northwest becomes more of an influence. But in the south, the Sierra Nevada and the Coast Range and the Great Central Valley of California influence the Klamath Mountains. And we Mm. also have an influence from the uh, Great Basin to the east. So again, it's kind of this this mixing ground of ecosystems and around every bend uh, in the river around here, there's something kind of unique and cool to to check out. So you're getting the extreme ends of all of these different bioregions overlapping in one place in addition to all of the other factors that you mentioned. Exactly. So can you help us kind of conceptualize how the biodiversity found in the Klamath compares maybe to other regions? Like how does it compare to the Sierra Nevada? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, and that's really why I think I latched onto the conifers is because conifers, I think, are a manageable means to comprehend biodiversity. Mm. When you talk about the Klamath Mountains, we're talking about 36 species of conifers. And we're talking about 3,500 species of vascular plants. I'm sorry, flowering vascular plants. Yeah. So I think it's a lot easier to understand 36 versus 3,500, right? Right. So to talk about the conifers, we have a couple endemics, right? So these are things that grow nowhere else on earth. Port Orford cedar, brewer spruce, I've mentioned them. But we also Mm -hmm. have, again, we have the influence from the Pacific Northwest. We have western red cedar. Mm. We have western hemlock, things that basically reach their southern range extension right here, Sitka spruce. We also have things that reach their northern range extension, like redwoods sugar pine, Jeffrey pine are near their northern limits here. Mm. So again, it's this crossroads of plants that I think are the, is kind of the window into that. But it's also those things drive the diversity of animal life, you know, in everything in between. Right. One of the things we've looked at, you know, native plants on the podcast before and how native plants, as Naomi Fraga puts it, are the building blocks for all terrestrial ecosystems, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have more building blocks or more diversity of building blocks, then you're going to have more diversity as you kind of move through the food web. Yep. So then to relate that back to the Sierra, when you have one rock type, which is granite, Mm -hmm. which is relatively hospitable compared to to serpentines, Mm -hmm. then it becomes a little bit less diversity because Mm -hmm. of that. At this point, the rain started picking up. There's, there's raindrops on Should my phone. Should we sit under a tree? We decided to move. All right. We had to, we got rained out. We did. We started in the sun <laughs> and now we're sitting under a Port Orford cedar to stay dry. And it's working. It this is. It's great. Yep. It like drips to the outside of the tree. This is perfect. So we were talking about biodiversity and we talked a little bit about conifer biodiversity, but I also wanted to, you would use these two terms of paleoendemic and neoendemic. And I'm curious if you can define those for sure. us. Sure. So we talked about endemics already, and those are things that within some boundary grow nowhere else, right? So often an an endemic could be a mountaintop, or it could be a mountain range, or it could be the Klamath Mountains, right? (laughs) As in the case of the Brewer Spruce. Paleo and Neo. Paleo means old and Neo means new. So we have endemism in in two forms, you know, anywhere, but I think it's a nice way to explore the Mm -hmm. uniqueness of the Klamath Mountains if you talk about the old endemics and the new endemics. So the old endemics, and again, I'm going to bring it back to conifers because this is my wheelhouse, but an old endemic would be something like a redwood, right? So a redwood once 
There were, of course, many species of redwoods in the past since the end of the Cretaceous. There's been a decline in conifers in general because the asteroid hit. The Cretaceous ended 66 million years ago with the impact of the asteroid Michael mentioned, which caused the extinction of about three quarters of all animal species on Earth, including all non-avian dinosaurs. It also did a number on conifers. In any way, the, mm. the ones that survived basically have been able to sort of find, and I say that in an anthropomorphic way, but, you know, find this habitat that suits them and persist for long periods mm. of time. So this is a species that maybe was once more widespread through climate changes, has become restricted over very long periods of time to a certain area. And again, redwoods are a great example. A lot of the Conifers and Cupressaceae are a good example. So the redwood relatives, whether it's a western red cedar or cypresses across California, they all sort of have small ranges. Okay, remember back at the beginning of the episode when I said to remember the Port Orford cedar because it was a good example of something Michael would say later? This is what I was talking about. Port Orford cedars are another paleoendemic. They used to have a wider range that has since contracted, but for whatever reason, possibly the abundance of water, they've persisted in an inland pocket in the headwaters of the Sacramento River. So they're mostly in southwestern Oregon, northwestern California, and that little blip in Shasta if you want to check them out. Okay, but if that's a paleoendemic, what's a neoendemic? Now, a cypress is a good example of a, of a neoendemic. So a, a neoendemic means a newly arisen endemic species. Neoendemics can happen for a variety of reasons, but I think the easiest way to think about them is a plant that maybe explores novel habitat or a new place. We call it ecological release, where maybe something spreads out into a new area that was maybe disturbed in some way. Mm. Maybe it's a harsh soil, and it speciates on that medium, whether it's, you know, again, and a lot of this happens on the serpentines. So we have these these new species that have arisen in more recent times due to this novel habitat that they've explored and then become reproductively isolated from a parent population. So, you know, and, and I'm talking about plants, but we have a really cool story here with chipmunks. And the neo-endemism within chipmunks and their actually genetics and a few other morphological features of the, of the chipmunks are starting to now just be understood. And they're basically divided by the large rivers that flow through the Klamath. Interesting. So each of the different watersheds or in-between watersheds has a different species of chipmunk. Own little chipmunk community. Yeah. Just yeah. isolated in that area. Exactly. How cool. Yeah. Do you have any favorite... Klamath endemics. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the Klamath foxtail pine. Uh, it's my favorite species of maybe besides my human children yeah. species uh, <laughs> on, the, on on Earth. I mean, it's so it's a relative of the bristlecone pine. So they live mm. over a thousand years, and they live on mountaintops, only the highest mountaintops within the Klamath Mountains, mm. and. It's a paleoendemic, oh. right? So they had a much wider range. We know this from pollen records in, in the lake. Like, mm. like Clear Lake has, in Lake County, has pollen from foxtail pines wow. about 20,000 years ago. Fun fact, Clear Lake is thought to be the oldest lake in North America. And scientists from UC Berkeley have taken cores of the sediment at the bottom of the lake, sort of like Arctic ice cores, but made out of mud. And the cores go back 130,000 years or more. With those cores, they've been able to map the way the climate has changed over that entire time period and have used pollen to determine which plants were present around the lake in the past. Currently, Clear Lake is surrounded by oak woodlands, but it used to be surrounded by conifers like the foxtail pine and others during the last ice age. But they're not there anymore, right? So they've moved around and they've become isolated on this climate that mimicked the climate they enjoyed in the Pleistocene. Wow. So that's that's my favorite. That's your favorite. That's my favorite. Awesome. I yeah. love it. So yeah, let's let's hear too. We talked about some specific plants. Let's hear about the big scale plant communities as they exist and as they're distributed across the Klamath Mountains. Sure. I think, you know, this goes back to this idea of this Klamath Mountains being a crossroads and we have the influence of a lot of different vegetation. And when vegetation repeats itself, it, you can define it as a vegetation alliance, which might be the most common vegetation alliance in the Klamath Mountains is probably the white fir Douglas fir forest. Mm. So that sort of mid elevation, just at the snow line conifer forest that, you know, as you're hiking up into, say, the Trinity Alps, you know, when you transition out of the broadleaf forest we're you know we're kind of in a uh, transition here in a lot of ways if we went up a little higher up this mountain it would be all conifers but we still have the influence of the tan oaks and the big leaf maples here so we're right at the edge of that snow forest 
But anyway, the point is that you, you look at these patterns and, and you can define them in many ways. And the California Native Plant Society has a whole program on vegetation and how do you define vegetation. And it's very mm. complex. I think within California, there's 450 alliances, right? Which means, wow. again, like I just mentioned, this Douglas fir, white fir or redwood or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh-huh. It's kind of, you know, you take that dominant species or one species or several species and then see where that repeats itself. Well, that would be really hard to do for the Klamath because I think there's, CNPS defines almost 200 of those alliances here within the Klamath. So we have just under half of all the alliances in California here in the Klamath, right? So what we did... Which is how much of the size of California? Like what percentage of the land mass? Oh gosh, that's a good question. The Klamath Mountains are about the size of, of Vermont or New Hampshire. Okay. And gosh, I would say... And California is huge. Yeah. <laughs> a tenth. Okay, about a tenth. Yeah, okay. I would say a tenth of California. So we With half of those. those just under half, yeah. So, again, that ha- that's due to this, this unique influence from all over, right? So what we did for the book is we distilled it down to ten plant communities, we okay. call them, right? Okay. So we took it out of the alliance level and... And, and looked at just the biggest, broadest patterns. And, you know, we've talked, again, we we started by discussing this coastal uh, rest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we also look at uh, interior lowland forests. So things along the river canyons, which might be characterized by Douglas fir, big leaf maple, mm-hmm. you know, canyon oaks on certain aspects and slopes. So, you know, within these different communities, there's a lot of overlap, obviously, the way we did it. But then then we move up into the mountains. We look at the montane conifer forest. We look at the sky islands. We look at the serpentine landscapes. So all of these together really paint the picture. But I think what one that's really interesting to discuss is chaparral, because mm. I think a lot of people in California are very familiar with chaparral. So familiar. Yes. <laughs> Basically, from here south, it's the dominant vegetation type below maybe 3,000 feet mm-hmm. in the coast range. and So uh, where people live. Where people live. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or the Sierra Nevada has, has chaparral influence. But we're at the northern extent of chaparral. Mm. And the, the northern Klamath Mountains in Oregon is where chaparral basically disappears mm. as you transition into the Pacific Northwest temperate rainforest. But within the chaparral, we have various types here within the Klamath Mountains. So we have the traditional chaparral that people are used to, but it's it's not very widespread in the Klamath. So things like chamise, different ceanothus, and you know manzanita, the white leaf manzanita. Basically, the southeast Klamath Mountains have that reflection of the rest of California. As you move further north, that chaparral shifts a little bit and it often becomes montane chaparral on south-facing slopes with greenleaf manzanita, chinkapin, huckleberry oak. Mm-hmm. So we have these dwarf vegetation communities, but only in small pockets. You know, mm-hmm. And again, this is the, the, the classic Klamath Mountain story. So the diversity in the Klamath Mountains is represented from literally the ground up starting with the rocks, going up into plant communities, and out into entire food webs. And in order to tell such a multifaceted story, Michael brought together a lot of people with expertise in a lot of different areas. So let's talk about some of the best stories that came out of this book. I mean, I know that you had 34 34 authors? 34. It's incredible. And this is a group of people who have spent a lot of time in the Klamath Mountains and have had many experiences. Yep. And so I'm curious if you have any favorite stories or favorite, you know, either in making the book or that people have told you about their experiences or that you have had personally here in the mountains. I think for me, the most interesting story came when we decided to include First Peoples mm. in a natural history, which is not done very often. But we felt like it was an integral part. But I didn't know why, I guess, when we started. Mm. So I created an outline about 2014, and, and the second chapter was First Peoples. And I, I didn't know why I put it there, but I do now. And I, I learned a lot mm. by including that. And Frank Lake was the, is the lead author on the First Peoples chapter. And what I came to learn through Frank and then the other people that I met from the Karuk tribe in particular, but also Yurok and Hoopa, was that people of had a huge influence on the Klamath Mountains for a long period of time. And I think as a Westerner, Western science teaches us that there's wilderness and wilderness is wild and it should be left wild and, you know, the ecosystems work just fine. But when those ecosystems have been influenced by people for tens of thousands of years before arrival of the Westerners 150 years ago, there's a dependence on that from the ecosystems in a lot of ways. So I, I learned, in particular, I learned about oak woodlands. And mm. I didn't mention that plant community just now, but 
oak woodlands along the rivers, those were all village sites. And I had no, mm. I had no comprehension of that before this project started. I, I knew some of them were, but I didn't really understand the level of influence that the First Peoples had on the Klamath Mountains in, you know, California or Western U.S. or whatever, North America. I mean, this, I, you know, I think it's a reflective of kind of what is not taught in universities, or at least it wasn't when I was there. And I think that that's changing for the better. So just learning, learning the influence that the First Peoples had, whether it was fire to build trails, fire to improve places that they would harvest food and still continue to harvest food. You know, that, those are all things that were new for me. And I think that that was, again, humbling, but also eye-opening and, and exciting. Yeah. And I think that the more you learn about that, the more you realize that a natural history in California, at least, I can't speak to any broader than that, is very much incomplete without understanding the role of First Peoples. Because like you said, when you're talking about a scale of tens of thousands of years, yep. it becomes co-evolution, right? It becomes it something different from just, oh, some people were here and they did some things, right? Like, no, yeah. <laughs> things are changing. The interaction and the relationships are actually being formed by the presence of humans on the landscape. Yep. And so now when I go to a place, and I think about this place in the Marble Mountains that I've visited repeatedly, it's a serpentine meadow. It's full of bear grass. Mm. It's full of lilies, geophytes in general. And this was, you know, these were gardens for First Peoples. They, they brought, maybe they brought initially some of the bulbs. Some of the bulbs may have been there already. But the, the amalgamation and the collection of what's there the amount of bear grass that's there, you know, this was all tended. The wild mm-hmm. was tended. And, and, and now when I see these, some of these places, I feel like I understand them a lot better. Yeah. That's great. I still and don't understand them, but I still understand them better. Sure. Yeah. 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 I think that that the amount of complexity, we've talked about the, the level of complexity, even within one ecosystem, right? And it takes a lifetime to learn that. And there's still going to be more. <laughs> there's yep. still going to be more that you don't know. So definitely check out Frank Lake's chapter on First Peoples in the Klamath Mountains and Natural History for more information on these ancient and still continuing land relationships in the Klamath Mountains. All right. What do you hope for kind of the big takeaways from either reading the book or listening to this podcast? Well, I mean, I think for me, my top level goal has always been connecting people to the natural world. And that's why I'm a teacher. But I also, you know, kind of reflecting on what I just said, I think it's also for me, I need to be Mm. continually connected to the natural world. And I, you know, the influence of social media, you know, technology, whatever it might be these days, like this is, there's, there's, this is just one more way to become less distracted. Mm. And for me, I need to, I'm realizing it's a little more selfish than I thought when I, mm. you know, first became a teacher, but I, because I think the need's bigger, but you know, yesterday I was on a field trip with a bunch of third graders mm. and, and just to see the awe that, that they, you know, we saw, we went to Patrick's Point or Sume State Park. We went to Wedding Rock and we saw whales, you know, mm. way off in the distance, but just and then they started to see sharks. And then they oh, started, I mean, cool. I don't know yeah. that they really saw sharks, but their imagination, right. you know, their imagination just ran. Yeah, they were filling <laughs> it in. And, and they were telling themselves the story of the natural world yeah. without the influence of, you know, a TV show or whatever it might be. So, you know, I think that that for me, and taking it back to that developing a love of a place mm-hmm. and through love comes understanding and, and better stewardship. I mean, for me, that's that's what it boils down to. I feel like if I can make a small impact in people's lives where they might want to protect a certain watershed or you know, whatever it might be. I think that's my big hope and dream. That's great. And I think that that's not going to happen if they don't have those experiences. I mean, speaking in my own life, I had some very amazing early experiences in the natural world. I had the opportunity to be outside a lot. But then when I got to my high school biology class, instead of having a field biology class, I had a football coach who didn't want to be there. Yeah. Who You know what I mean? Who who was like, here's what it says in the textbook. And I just zoned right out. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, but I had some great English teachers, which is great, right? We need people in all these different areas. But I think that it really turned me off of learning science in school. Mm-hmm. And I think that if people can have those experiences where they're learning hands-on field science, ecology, that's going to bring them in closer relationship. And I think that's really great. It's great what you're doing. Uh, thank you. And I appreciate what you're doing because you found your story through English class mm-hmm. in high school. But what was the influence that you had to draw you into the storytelling of science? I guess it's my question for you. Just your question for me? Well, I think that I had very young, early experiences 
I lived on a 32-acre piece of property when I was seven and eight years old on my grandfather, my grandfather's property, my great-grandfather, in the eastern hills of the Napa Valley, mm-hmm. in oak woodlands, coast live oaks predominantly. So at this time, my family lived in a little tiny 15-foot camping trailer on my great-grandfather's property because we were trying to save money for a down payment on a house. And my dad was working like 14-hour days building scaffolding at an oil refinery. So my brother and I would wake up super early and feed the cows and the chickens and then go exploring. But what were we doing on our adventures? Some of them are things I don't recommend. Handling bats and snakes and amphibians and, you know, all kinds of things. And I I developed that sense of independence and intense curiosity about the natural world and a sense of connection that then it's just taken me a really long time to come full circle to that. Well, thanks for your uh, science storytelling through a a literature perspective, I guess. I'm happy to have the opportunity. Okay, one more thing on this. For a lot of really good reasons, it's illegal to capture bats in California under most circumstances, unless you have a permit from Fish and Wildlife. I didn't know this when I was seven, but now we all know. So let's love the bats by giving them space. And call your local wildlife rehab if you've spotted one you think needs help. My last question for you is, what about the Klamath Mountains still takes your breath away? Good question. I think... I think right now I have several trips planned with, with my kids this summer and I'm just really looking forward to seeing the Klamath Mountains through their eyes mm. and what takes their breath away. I know, I think I generally know what to expect of the Klamath Mountains now. There's always some surprises, you know, I've talked about some of them, but they, they're going to teach me a lot more, mm. I think, because I know, I know how they think and I know how they see and I know what they get excited about. So, so yeah, we're going to do some trips this summer. We're going to get up to, we're going to see a lot of snow this summer. Mm. And probably do a little trail work, but also some exploring, seeing some lakes and climbing some mountains. And yeah, so I think that 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 is my excitement right now is is seeing the Klamath Mountains through the eyes of my kids. That's beautiful. Well, Michael, thank you for bringing me to this beautiful place and teaching me about it. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. So look closely at the incredible life forms around you. Consider how they might be driven by the rocks under your feet, the altitude where you stand, and the rain rolling off your umbrella. And maybe even make your way to the Klamath Mountains if you ever get the chance. I want to thank Michael for not only introducing me to the Klamath Mountains and sharing so much knowledge and experience with all of us, but also for inviting my family over for dinner when we were in town, which was so fun. And we even got to see a California pitcher plant growing outside of his and Allison's front door. If you haven't already paused this episode earlier to order Klamath Mountains and Natural History, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's packed with great information, detailed maps, and gorgeous photos that'll make you fall in love with the Klamath Mountains. If you stick around to the end of the episode, I always tell you something interesting or embarrassing or funny from my week. And this week, it's that my six-year-old stayed home from school sick on Monday, but she was feeling good enough to help my husband with projects around the house. So they just like built a step stool together and changed out a broken lock. And I was not super productive that day, but sat on the couch and half worked, half shared space with them. And it was so peaceful. Definitely my favorite day of the week so far. Anyway, that's all for this week. I can't wait to see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find the link to that as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.